Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week we're going into space and we're not coming back alone. We watched Alien, yet another movie where they don't have a quarantine procedure they stick to yeah, in space. Uh, from 1979, the original one, mm-hmm. directed by Ridley Scott. Um, I don't want to ask you how your week was because I know how your week was. It was good. <laughs> It was your week. It was good. I drove away and then I came back. Nobody ended up in the hospital, so... That's good. That's a win. We call that a win. My friend's parents went to Vegas and I heard last night that his mom gambled my 20 and made 30, so she's bringing me back some cash. (laughs) So that's good. Mm. Uh, Yeah, no, it's good. We were... it's, It's getting close to Christmas and I don't know how to reconcile that in my life so we're doing the best we can i put up the tree you did it was so lovely to come home to yeah. so this week we watched alien 1979 this movie is officially older than me which is wild uh with one sigourney weaver as a smart lady that nobody listens to and then everybody dies except the smart lady and her cat that end let's Wrap it up. <laughs> That's basically the movie, right. like the, the overarching plot of the movie. Uh, do you want to talk to us about any making of stuff or well, anything like that? Uh, hmm. The issue is, for me, is that the film has a long history uh, in other forms. I, it became a franchise. Right, but I mean, to start with, there's a, a book by E. Van Vogt, the science fiction writer. Uh, he wrote a story in 19... Um, 1939, That's all in this Downing magazine called The Black Destroyer about a, the last of an alien species who oddly is shaped like our, our companion tonight, a large black cat. And it prowls around a, a uh, rocket ship that's just left this particular planet where it's the last of its species and it goes long killing and mm-hmm. wreaking havoc on this spaceship. And that was incorporated into a book called The Voyage of the Space Beagle. The Beagle is what the Charles Darwin right. wrote. So it's it's uh, it inspired by that. It was, you know, because back then often writers would just take their own material and rewrite the names of the characters and make it into a longer uh, book, which is disappointing when you're trying to be a completist and read all this author's work and then you find out, oh, I've read all of this half dozen times. Oh, right, over and over again. Right. In different, in different oh, it's, but here his name is Dr. Grovesner. Anyhow, <laughs> it was... Um, a similar story, It, The Terror from Beyond Space. So it was a 1958 science fiction film that was written by a real science fiction writer, Jerome Bixby. It was about a man who is being picked up and taken back, picked up from Mars and taken back on a spaceship to stand trial for the murder of all of his comrades because mm. he claims an alien snuck out and killed them all. Yeah. And as it turns out, the alien has snuck aboard the ship while they were on Mars and it's now lurking around. Not and just an alien then, a Martian. A Martian, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a creature who wanders around the corridors, the or rather the um, the exhaust corridors and the uh, like the ducting and things right, like that. Exactly like the film Alien, and he's wandering around through there and breaking into various levels of the spaceship. And they constantly have to coordinate off, uh, shut off one deck of the ship so that they can escape to another. And finally, he's trapped in the engine room where they open up the door of. Um, that leads to the outside and to deep space, and he's sucked out by the vacuum. Yep. Blown through the airlock. Right, exactly. As are two different things in this movie. 
And then in, in uh, the 1960s, 1963, I think, Mario Bava did a film called Planet of the Vampires. It has no vampires in it. It um, So it's American, there's English right. name is Planet, Planet of the Vampires. vampires. Uh, the, uh, the Italian title is Demon Planet. And it's about people who land, who responding to a distress call, find an alien <laughs> spaceship complete with giant skeletons on board. Oh, yeah, that's like in Prometheus. Right, and after discovering the giant skeletons, they also find an alien parasitic species that has no physical form but actually possesses the people and attempts to take them over in order to go back to the, uh, go back to their home planet and take over their planet. The, um, the thing is, in all of these cases, but especially with uh, Planet of the Vampires, it was borrowed from very heavily for this movie. Everything's and, borrowed from movies right, now. Right, but I mean, there are scenes in uh, uh, the author, the director, I can't pronounce his name, uh, who directed the film Drive. Venton Refn. Refn. Okay, I could not understand how So, Nicholas Refn, mm-hmm. uh, who directed the film Drive, recently held a retrospective on Mario Bava's films, mm-hmm. including Demon Planet, and just announced in front of everyone what he did. He said, Alien just ripped this film off. This is not to say that Alien is not a great movie. See, also Star Wars. Right. Like, I mean... <laughs> He's like, it's not to say it's not a great movie, but there are scenes where you can actually put still frames of what Mario Bava did with uh, a small cast and no money, and what uh, Ridley Scott was able to do with a great deal of money. But still a small cast. It's, it's still a small I cast. I think the, the movie looks good regardless. Mm, right. Like, it looks really good. Oh, my God. Um, so... That's all frustrating to you? Is that what you're it's saying? It's sort of frustrating because when I was going through material researching this today, uh, every once in a while you'll hear somebody mention it, uh, but the you'll Stephen never King? no no it the uh, Terror from Beyond Space that oh, okay as an inspiration for this. Well, possibly it's like no, it's obviously it even the monster even dies the same yeah, way. Yeah, when people when fans write things like that, they yeah. they can't be trusted because they think that their thing they love is the best thing. Right. Of it. We were talking about fandom earlier today. I'm just like, I love that people love things. I don't, we were talking, I was talking with my friend down south about mm-hmm. Star Wars. And because he was talking about like certain characters in there. And he's like, well, the books were canon, but then they made them legacy. So they're not canon anymore. And I'm just like, what? Does, does everybody know that all of this is made the fuck up. Right. So you're telling me that that stuff is more made up than this stuff? What are you doing? I think, <laughs> and it's, uh, as I expressed to you this morning, I think there's a difference when it's a single creator, right? When you have Arthur Conan Doyle writing 50-something Sherlock Holmes stories or Edgar Rice Burroughs yeah, writing Tarzan, funny, yeah. and then somebody continues, you know who where the actual canon, quote-unquote, should be. But once again, but it's, it's right. all made <laughs> and in, in in this case, it's like so many people contributed to it. Um, Dan O'Bannon, who wrote the screenplay, and there's all sorts of disputes as to whether or not he finished the or his screenplay was actually professional enough to be bought by the studio that then turned out the film, or whether producer Walter Hill rewrote the screenplay. There's all sorts of questions about that. But really, ultimately, it's not what anybody says in this movie as much as how it looks, as you pointed out, because it really is a striking movie. Yeah. The frustrating part to me is going, um, it has visual antecedents that nobody's acknowledging. 
Except for, of course, Mr. Ruffin. I don't think anybody cares enough to acknowledge or not acknowledge. Mm. I think that's what it is. They're like, this is neat. End of, like, which is fine. Uh, I don't think Ridley Scott has gotten up and said, all of this came from me. He claims that he'd never seen any of these films. It's possible he hadn't. Which is crazy, because when you look at Demon Planet, there are... Like side by side frames, you can compare. Like, wait, even the shape of the spaceship. Is sure, the but there's a cinematographer involved. And I don't know if it would be the cinematographer or it would be the um... or the director of photography or whoever is running the camera. Like, right. a lot of people other than Ridley Scott could have seen things and put them in there. From what I understand about the making of the film and what I did, uh, when I looked into it today, he kind of he was one of the few directors who did not turn it down. Everyone sort of turned the idea down. And they were just the... It was a, not a great time for... Like, not a big time for alien movies well, at that time. Well, it was time. after Star Wars, but that's but what like, everyone was trying to make. Yeah, Star but Star Wars is right. not an alien movie. It's a movie about people in space. It's not... You know what I mean? Like, this is a also people in space, but the in, in Star Wars, the good guys and the bad guys, people. Mm-hmm. Hu- human beings. But this is just a few years after Star Wars became, or, or you know, debuted, and 20th Century Fox was looking for another film that would would be science fiction, only taking it in a different direction because there were hundreds of Star Wars ripoffs and clones, and some of them were very good, and some of them were not good at all. Um, and so this is the one that got turned down by all the studios because the script writing apparently was very amateurish for the first draft of it. And it got rewritten a lot, and eventually somebody who had turned the film down initially, uh, Ridley Scott, came back to do the film. It, the dialogue in this movie feels very, um, and I don't like saying this because I feel like too many people say this really not understanding how the writing process works. Mm-hmm. A lot of this feels unscripted. It's, yeah, and, and what I'm listening to, what the act- actors are actually saying, and, and it's a really good cast. It is. Of actors. And that was really, to me, the most successful piece in terms of that's not visual is the, the putting this particular group of people together. Yeah. yeah. And also giving them a gripe, a genuine gripe. Yes, right off the bat. Right now, right off the bat. Because, y'all, uh, the alien is bad, but the true villain of this movie is capitalism. Right. And I think it, <laughs> as much as I like, I prefer this film to Aliens. I've not. I haven't seen any of the other ones since I was in college. I don't think I'd seen this one since I was in college. I'm gonna rewatch them. Which one has Bill Paxton in it? It's the second one, Aliens. I like that film, but I like this one more because I think the sense of menace and creepiness is much better. It's aiming. Aliens is aiming for something completely different. Right, because they're on a whole ass planet, right? Like right. in this movie, they are. Well, they go to the moon, but they're. They're back on the ship by what mm-hmm. fifteen minutes in, and then they're just on the ship. Right. That's it. They don't. There's well, nowhere to go. I think what this film was trying to get, what it gets very much that E. Van Vogt did in his Voyage of the Space Beagle and other of those earlier versions of the story, is getting how really long and dull space travel is. Yeah. And uh, the writer had previously written something called Dark Star as a college project that wound up getting bought by a distributor and turned released theatrically. Yeah. Uh, it was it's a name by, that I've heard of, or a movie that yeah, I've heard of, but I don't know. It's the, it was directed by uh, the first film directed by John Carpenter. Oh, okay, that's why. And yep. so um, they did a similar thing where it's just a bunch of people who are doing a like a bomb disposal unit in outer space, 
and it captures Ooh, some of that. stresses. Right, some of that. And then bombs talk, and they, they're smart mouth, and they because it's a comedy. Oh, okay. You lost me for a second, but right. I'm not sure. Um, and so there's a lot of that going on in this film, too. So I think the first thing that we need to talk about with this movie is the cast. There are seven people in this movie. There are ten people in this movie, but one of them is the body of the alien. Another one is also the body of the alien, but they are uncredited and cre- uncredited, and one of them is the voice of the computer. So that's three. The rest are the this crew, and that's it. Because and the cat, because we don't end up. We are in space the whole time. They don't come to Earth. They don't none of that. So. The, yeah, the cast is so good. We start with Sigourney Weaver, who is second build, which makes me very, like, well, this is her first, angry. Her first film role ever is the other thing. Yeah, but if you look at right. time on screen, lines spoken, the fact that she had to be mostly naked at, at one point, like, mm-hmm. she deserves top billing on this. It's Tom Skerritt gets top billing, and he's like... Second to die or the something? The idea was, apparently, in earlier drafts of the film also, that he dies almost off the bat. Yeah, that feels And the right. idea was to cast an actor who's familiar to people through his television and film a, appearances. A Drew Barrymore in Scream situation. Right, that's what they wanted to or do. Or Psycho. So yeah. It might have also been that he was, they were faking you out by going, here's the lead hero of the film, and then he's gone. I just hope she got more money than Psycholly. You know what I mean? I'm sure she didn't, because she was a woman, and it was 1979. And it was, again, her first film role, so... She is third in charge, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, the captain of our ship, it's Dallas, Tom Skerritt, right? is Tom Skerritt. He had a full full beard, not just his mustache, which is what I'm used to seeing Tom Skerritt as. He looks great. We have John Hurt as Kane. He was a, so young in this. And the other thing is, almost all of these men, all of these, this cast is largely deceased. Um... So, that's sad. Then we have Sigourney Weaver. We have Veronica Cartwright, who we just saw in The Birds as a mm-hmm. tiny baby. Well, she wasn't. She's like, what, we said 14 when she when they were filming? Yeah. So, this is her not 14 anymore. Uh, we have Harry Dean Stanton and Yafet Koto, who are like the mechanics? They're like Mutt and Jeff, in a way. And they're really very funny. They're, they're, they, they keep the ship going, because they're essentially just... The way that um, O'Bannon explained it is that he says it's like um, they're truckers in space. Yeah, they're, it's, they're, they're a tugboat for right. all intents and purposes, yeah. And it's even, the ship even looks like a tugboat. It's yeah. graceless, really. Yeah. So, oh, and then there's Ian Holm, who plays what you think for most of the movie is a psychopath. And then it turns out that's not untrue. Uh, and then I was like, I looked at him and I said... Someday you'll be a hobbit. Weird. Now he's passed. Yafit Koto has passed. John Hurt has passed. Harry Dean Stan has passed. Like, was that over half? And then I was like, oh, well, it's been 44 years. That seems okay. So they are in stasis when the movie starts. Uh, well, Kane has woken up first. Right. Um, and, yeah, so it's Captain... Executive officer, that's John Hurt. Warrant officer, that's Ripley. Navigator Lambert, who is uh, Veronica Cartwright. Science officer Ash. 
and two engineers, Parker and Brett. So they are awoken from stasis only halfway home from where they're headed, or from where they, they came from, because there was a distress beacon of unknown origin coming from a moon, and their computer was set to wake them up under certain conditions, and this is one of those conditions. So they go to the moon. Right, because there's a distress call. Not our moon. That they Yes, they're, they're <laughs> way far up there yeah. somewhere. Yeah, so they have the distress call, and they go to the moon, and... Who goes down? Kane goes down. Uh, Dallas goes down. And then... It's, uh, let's see, Lambert, who's Veronica Cartwright. Oh, she goes down too? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, and then everybody else. So Harry Dean Stanton and then Yafit Kodo aren't going down. Mm-hmm. Now we do, you, as you said, there's a real conflict here, which is as soon as we see them w- waking up, they were talking about bonuses. They are, they're like, well, we are supposed to be asleep right now. So we're, what, how am yeah. I going to get paid for this time? Like, <laughs> Well, this is what I think is the improvement in this story from the other versions of the stories that I read you, right? Is that the, I mean, going back to Voyage of the Space Beagle, it's a whole ship full of uh, people who have been men, all men, most of whom have been chemically castrated so that they can survive for long years in space travel, which was a weird point to make. But Because I, masturbation apparently doesn't exist in space. No, I guess not. Or I'm not sure exactly why that was put in there, but that was a point. That because if, because God forbid they start fucking each other is why. <laughs> but the, um, the idea is, uh, I think at this point, you instead of having very noble space travelers like an it tear from beyond space or these bold space explorers who are on a rescue mission like in Demon Planet, you have these people who are essentially working class people. Yep. This is their job. Yep. Harry Dean Stanton and Yafit Koto are constantly griping about wanting to, you know, they're, they're arguing over points, right? They're telling the captain, can I get half a share when we're done with this? Because you guys are getting full shares. I want to get at least half a share. Okay. If we're stopping off on this planet. Do I get time yeah. for this? Because this is I'm actually, not getting paid to go yeah. on a rescue mission. That's not my job. Right. I'm an engineer. Like I'm here to fix this ship if it and breaks. And it's enormous. The ship we should point out. Their is, ship is small, but it sort of sits inside right. of a huge Right. Thing. So the amount of area that they would have to cover just to maintain their payload, which is, what did you say it was, 20,000? 20, 20 million, 20 million tons, tons, which I still don't understand how tonnage in space works, but we don't have to get into it. Uh, so, you sure you don't want to talk about it? Because it seems genuinely distressing. No, I, I don't. <laughs> I'll just think about it alone at night before I go to sleep. Um, gravity. Anyways. <laughs> okay. I don't. I've never taken <laughs> I, physics, I, so I maybe it was I'm a wrong. Very but interesting point to make. It's yeah. Okay, so okay, fine. I'll <laughs> it. it says twenty million tons. Twenty million tons is a specific weight here on Earth that is based on Earth's gravity. Right. In space, I don't think anything has tonnage because there's no gravity holding it to anything, mm-hmm. which is fine, but. Is the place where they are mining this ore, because that's what it is, the exact same size as Earth? Because that's the only way that the tons can be accurately measured. I mean, I'm sure what it is is 
there's some sort of conversion and then this is what it is. But it just bothered me as we see this huge thing in space and it's like, it's 20 million tons. And I'm like, not right now. <laughs> not right now it isn't. But yeah, so it's dumb, but it was the first thing that no, I thought I of when we started that's, that's good like science the, fiction when you're, well, good science fiction is written in such a way that you ask questions like that and you're able to find your answers to it, either in the text or your own answers. Yeah, so it just, yeah, because that's the title card. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, wait, what? We should say the, the, the ship is called the Nostromo and mm -hmm. there is, and I think, I don't know if it comes from the art design or if it was originally in the text. So much biologic, um, like, terms that are mm -hmm. used for the various things. So, like, when they undock the ship to go down to this moon, they call it, like, releasing the umbilicus. Right. They refer to things as the dorsal rather than, like, mm -hmm. aft and starboard. They're like they're using um, more biology terms, and then of course this. Um, they have a ship. The, I mean, the onboard computer. The onboard computer is called Mother, which is like deeply upsetting to me for some reason. I'm just like, ew. I think the <laughs> idea was that they wanted to have some because there's a lot of, as we've said, elements from other science fiction films yeah. in here. Uh, it's hell, but like right. When Ridley <laughs> Scott was brought this film. Or he was, rather, okay, he had just finished doing The Duelist, right, um, which is a great film uh, about uh, two men with an ongoing duel that just keeps getting interrupted and it goes on for 20 years. It's That's a really, ridiculous. It's a okay. very good film. But uh, he, um, on the basis of that, that's what made him one of the choices to direct this film because he was very visual. And what he brought to it was he had been spending a long time trying to create a sort of a space-age version of Tristan and Isolde believe it or not. Okay. And yeah. so what he did is that he brought all of his designs, in, uh, which were heavily inspired by Mobius, uh, the French artist who did uh, metal, um, heavy metal. Yeah. And also, uh, I, I'm not sure if it was Abandon who brought to him a copy of um, uh, the Necronomicon that was illustrated by... Uh, Giger? Giger, yes. Okay. And that was what blew him away, and that's why... This the design of everything looks like you're looking at something that's both ancient and modern at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and wet. Everything, everything is, is very so wet. wet. And so the biomechanical part of it really was something. Yeah. That yeah, biomechanics is very interesting right. to me. I like. Um, I like. There's a lot of sci-fi that I read mm -hmm. that is based in uh, sort of various alterations, mechanical right. alterations to people. I think that's really interesting. Um, but yeah. So it's a lot of it's a lot of bio right. within the mechanics. And this, is, this film really put Giger in the mainstream in terms of you know because before that he was doing this really kind of um, transgressive art. Yeah, I want to find um, which is really the only way to put it because it, his work is also very sexual. Which considering the kind of things that he designs, yeah, a lot of stuff in this movie looks like penis. Right, like a lot. Or um, vagina. There's a lot of yes. Also that yes. Vaginal openings to things. There's a lot of you know, bizarrely sexual, including the alien itself is very sexual looking. So, should say H.R. Giger. That is how it's pronounced. Mm -hmm. He's a Swiss artist. Yeah, all of his stuff is shiny and round. Like it's very round. Mm -hmm. Even being 
sh sharp. Mm -hmm. It's sharp in its roundness. I don't. It's very hard to understand. He did a movie called Killer Condom. I don't even know what to say about that. He did Poltergeist 2. Right, he did the, the, the tequila worm that comes to life, which was a really interesting design. He also did a movie called Species. Yeah, oh yeah, he did Species and Species 2. Which was a weird one because that was a creature that was both, it was Natasha Henstridge's other personality, so it's a being that's both sexual and horrible at the same time. It was a really, I wish that film would have been just a little bit better. Ridley Scott believed that when you see monsters in the movies, generally it's a disappointment, especially if you don't have the budget or you don't have the... So they're sitting there going through design after design after design, and then suddenly when he gets shown this, yeah. it's like, okay, this is exactly what we need, yeah. and it influenced everything yeah. in the film. The Xenomorph is the name of the alien mm. in this thing, which you don't they don't name it in the right. movie. And it is extraordinarily distinctive. Like... Now in culture, if you see that thing, you you know exactly what it is. There is, what I'll tell you something. Mm. Uh, I went to Manhattan mm -hmm. to see a friend graduate uh, from uh, Barnard. Right, she was an artist. She was working as an apprentice for a man who was designing the sculptures outside of Saint John Cathedral of Saint John the Divine. Okay, in New York, and the xenomorph is in that sculpture. That's amazing. As well as Darth Vader, because his whole idea he's not was big, not evil. Yeah, his idea was how to represent evil to a modern audience because they'd seen all sorts of, you know, special effects horrors in films, so just presenting the kind of traditional gargoyles and things is not he's not but gonna also like the image to the audience. And there's something cool about putting space things in there if you believe that God mm. created everything. Right. Alien is everything. Right. Darth Vader is everything. I guess. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I just like the idea of using symbols that people would understand, and it made me think about the gargoyles that you see outside of Notre Dame. Yeah. Wondering, I wonder what people at the time, if that was a character that they knew from right. the folklore. Right. Sure, their their names were Victor and Hugo. So they're going down to check this out, mm -hmm. and they're doing it mostly at the behest of their science officer, Ash, who is played by Ian Holm, who has... Nary a facial expression in this movie. He's so deadpan. Now, there's a reason. Mm -hmm. We'll get to it. But he's so deadpan and so, like, matter-of-fact, but, like, also... It's, it's very interesting the way that this character works because there's no real logic behind mm -hmm. his behaviors. There is a protocol he is following, it turns out, but for the whole part of, like, until you realize that the whole, through the whole movie, you're like, this dude's a psychopath. Like, he is not responding to the things and that are happening actions, in a normal his, way. His, um... Uh, the opening of the hatch is a problem for me, mm -hmm. but we'll okay. get to that in All just right. a second. So, they go, three of them go down, Kane makes the fatal mistake that is also made in the Prometheus movie. Of, Which was made in the blob in every movie before right, that. Right, but Prometheus is identical right. to this thing, it's right? Like, what's in there? Right. There's a ton of eggs, and I'm going to put my face right up close right. to it. D don't, don't do that. Don't, don't but, even poke it with a stick from like, afar. <laughs> anybody who had seen any of the horror science fiction films was like, don't <laughs> touch it. Yes. And this is the future, so right. you'd think they'd have seen all this stuff and thought, I shouldn't touch that. So Everyone yeah, he puts his ever face been in a Roger Corman film, right? Real close to it, and he's like, "Oh, there's movement inside." Okay, even more. Get the fuck away from it. Mm -hmm. And this thing breaks through his helmet and attaches to his face. This is called a face hugger. Now it wasn't called anything then, uh, and 
wraps its little tail around his neck. It was called monkey spider thing with testicles, is basically what it looks like. That's testicles? It has those great big sacks on either sides of its legs and then the long tail that wraps oh, around your neck. I notice the sacks. It, yeah. That is. Uh, so he is dragged back to the ship mm-hmm. by... Uh, Dallas and Lambert. Dallas and Lambert. And they're like, we need to let him in. And Ripley is like, no, this is a quarantine situation and I'm going to quarantine you. Until we know what the fuck that is, Mm -hmm. you're not coming in the ship. And Dallas wants to override her, which is bananas. My whole problem with all of these movies, Alien in Space Mm -hmm. gets on the ship movies, is... They don't ever have a quarantine procedure until it's too late and they already needed a quarantine procedure. This ship has a quarantine procedure, but nobody follows it. So what even was the point of having a quarantine procedure? I used to love watching Star Trek back in the day, and apparently it still is something they don't think about. All these other species are coming on board the ship and just sort of walking around all the time. Well, in Star Trek, or Star Trek, to me, it makes a little bit of sense because they're in a federation, right? Like, we know what you are. (laughs) But as particularly the old program, things would just beam themselves on board and say, I'm on board your ship. Absolutely not. And you're going, like, wait. And also, why do you breathe our air? Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So she's like, no, you're not coming in. And Ash is like, I'm opening the door. (laughs) And it's just like, you... Because he says he's following the captain's orders. And right. she says, when he's not on board, which technically he is not, I'm the captain now. Mm-hmm. And Ash is like, go fuck yourself. And he opens the thing. So now it's on board. Because of course it is. And they take Kane into the like sick bay. Mm-hmm. They do a full body scan. They see that it has something down his throat. And then... Uh, he's like basically in a coma. He seems fine. They think it's giving him air because mm-hmm. he's not dead, right. but he's not able to breathe because this thing is completely covering his face. Um, and then it, you know, falls off. Well, first they try to, to remove him. it. Yeah, they try to remove it. It has acid. Said, it has acid for blood. I bet. And I think that's a really good uh, thing. And so, but it the acid drips down. Like, they cu- try to cut up off, and he calls it one of its digits, right? Mm-hmm. And he cuts into it, and the acid drips down onto the floor and eats through the floor. And then they are going, they're like, he's like, it's going to eat through the hole. And then they run after it down the right, down right. the levels. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to catch it in something? Because it's acid and will eat through everything. Like, right. I was just like, what? what's the plan here? Just getting it down and watching it go through the hole and then die immediately rather than waiting for the ship to, like, implode or whatever's going to happen. It was very weird. But it only goes three levels. And then it stops. I love when they're waiting for it to come through and they're all just, like, under it looking up. And I'm just like, it's acid. Yet, why do you oh, guys want to put your face... Like, like don't, don't let it fall on you. Why, why well, step away. Step back. I just don't... Yeah. The whole time I'm just like, hey guys, stop putting your face next to things. Like, if you don't know what it is, don't put your face that next to it. It was the 70s, it. man. <sighs> I guess. That's how you found out about that. Does this milk taste bad? Yeah. Like, no. Uh, <laughs> there's also like a ship issue. Like, there's something broken down. And um, yeah, when asked how long it's going to take, 
Yafet Koto says, uh, 17 hours. And then, and then, uh, Harry Dean Stanton gets on the line and goes, at least 25 hours. <laughs> yeah, they, they're not eager to, uh, what, what the sense we get from their interactions is that Ripley is very much by the book. Yeah. Because she's the one who's talking to them about a, a But also, you're in space by yourself. Right. You kind of have to be by the book or you're all going right. to die so out here. He's talking to Parker. She talks to Parker and Brett. She's sort of laying out the line for them uh, or laying down the law. I'm not sure which metaphor I'm looking for in terms of how they're going to get paid and how this, how they have to respond to these, uh, these distress calls. Right. Uh, she's the one who tells uh, Dallas, I can't let you in because there's a in. protocol. Um, and then nobody listens to her about it. Right. It's great. It's and and so it's, I, I think it's a really good argument for what, why you should be listening to her. And on top of that, why rule following is a good thing. Not always. But yeah. like in space by yourself where no one right. can hear you scream, you listen, like you do smart things. Nobody's doing smart things. Did, did you know? I did. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are some people who say that who have no idea where it comes from. Oh, That's okay. I'm asking. Yes, I... It's just, it's not even do the rules. It's don't do stupid shit. Right. And everybody is doing stupid shit. So, Including the so-called science officer. Well, he, yeah. He makes a huge blunder. So they, this thing falls off and it appears to be dead next to him. And he's awake and he's drinking water and then he's really hungry. And then they say, okay, once you've eaten, we'll all eat. Mm. We'll have like a celebratory dinner and then we'll go back in our little pods and go back to sleep right. and finish our trip home. And uh, at this point, here's another thing that they should do. Scan this motherfucker. You have the ability to scan him. You did it before. Mm -hmm. You saw there was something down his throat. And now he's up and awake and you don't think to put him back in the scanner? I think this could also be the clearance from the science officer saying he's cool to But also the science officer doesn't know what this thing is. Right. And if if I'm going to call myself a scientist, right. I'm going to go ahead and do one single test, maybe. It's just wild. Well, I was just like, how does she not say, hey, put it in the scanner? Well, again, no one's listening to her. Well, yeah. Right. But at least we would have one person going, hey, remember that scanner when there was something down his throat? Maybe we should take a look and, and again, see if it left anything was behind. once at one point well over two hours so okay it's just under two it, now it could be but yes. that's the other that's the next stupid thing to do and so they're sitting so at there the could dinner be a scene that where she's oh maybe protesting. but don't i mean i know of all the things to cut don't cut the scene where the smart person winds up doing smarter things but <sighs> so they're having dinner and uh -huh. it's you know fun and everybody is you know having a good time <laughs> and then uh kane starts like uh, seizing almost mm -hmm. it looks like and then you guys he had a thing inside of him and that thing wanted to come out and it didn't want to go in the way that it came <laughs> it just wanted to get the straight out through his chest this is chest burster mm -hmm. you said that veronica cartwright they didn't tell her what the effect they was going to be they didn't tell any of them really what the effect was going to be and i think that when you're looking at the shot they obviously knew when the puppet's coming up yeah but that first blood explosion thing apparently yeah. was not people were not warned about that warned about it because she has a legitimate reaction to right. it um and then my favorite version of the alien comes out the uh -huh. little the little puppet and he like runs away but he like there's no movement of feet. It's like he's on wheels, and he just, like, looks around, and he goes, Ooh! and then he 
runs away. And I love him. He's so cute. He has silver teeth. They all have silver teeth. Right. I forgot that they had silver teeth for some reason. Right. Well, uh, dentition in outer space. And then, and then they got to find this thing, right? right? One down. They wrap him up and shoot him out of the airlock. And I'm like, why? The thing that was in him is gone now. <laughs> why do we have to shoot him into space? Very unceremonious. He like spins end over end. It's very sad. Well, also one of the, <laughs> I can't remember who comments, well, does anybody have anything to say? Like they can't think of anything. So we're just going to shoot him out there. And... Bon voyage. Like, yeah, it's, it's very funny. And then they try to locate the creature. Mm-hmm. Dallas tries to find it, dies. Uh, I think, is Veronica Cartwright next? No, no, Veronica Cartwright stays alive long enough because she's one of the last three people along That's with right. Ash. So the next one to get is Harry Dean Stanton. They've got um, nets, electric pl- prods, and f- uh, flamethrowers. That's mm-hmm. their, t- their things. Um, yeah, oh, that's right. Harry Dean Stanton, and then he dies. He's looking then for the cat. Yafet Kodo. Um, and Veronica Cartwright die together. <coughs> that's right. Because she literally freezes when it approaches her and she can't move. She can't move, and yeah. And he's trying to get her out of there. And, and she doesn't. But, you, and by the time Brett dies, it, this thing is right. full grown. This thing yes, grows and a wick. That's the reason why Brett dies, because he's prowling around looking for something the size looking, of a cat. Yeah. Right? Not looking for this huge yeah. thing. And that's one of, there's a good scene where Yafet Koto, he's going on about, he's like just reciting over to himself, it's really big, it's really big. It must have been really big to do what it did to him. So that he, right, because they see the aftermath, yeah. Um, but they don't now. They don't have any idea right. what they're looking for. Yeah, I which mean, is, is it going to keep going exponentially? What is it going to do? Right. I mean the uh, the actor who played who's in the suit, the final manifestation of it, was six foot nine, I think. Six yeah, foot ten. He's, yeah, he's and very so big. in the suit. He was seven feet tall. Yeah, so, and the head on the thing, right. if it looked down. It would oh, go it was, up, so right. it would probably be over nine, because the mm. head on it is very, very long. very long, which is, I think, my favorite part. I really like the design of that head. Um, then I'm like, is it all brain in there? Who could say? Um, all mouth. Apparently has a mouth inside of a mouth. <laughs> so we're down to Yafet Koto, uh, Veronica Sigourney Weaver, and Ian Holm. Mm-hmm. Ian Holm still is not reacting to anything that is happening. Right. At all. Veronica wants to go, what's her name in the thing? I shouldn't call her that. But Lambert. Lambert wants to get in the shuttle and book it. Right. She's not wrong. But Ripley is like, it won't support four. And I was like, well, leave the psychopath behind. He seems pretty well, chummy he, with this she's thing. She's aware of the fact that everything that went wrong has gone wrong because of this guy. Yeah. And he, she starts like losing it at right. him. And he is stone faced. He he does he has almost no affectation for this mm. whole movie, and um, then Ripley kind of breaks into the computer because she's um, she does a command override because she tries to figure out why they why they were stopped what was going mm. on and there's like a secret command and she's like I'm the I'm the boss. Tell me what the right. command was and it's command nine thirty seven and it was go get this alien the crew is expendable. That was the command. And uh, she confronts Ash. He tries to choke her to death. In a really horrible way. Yeah. It's, uh, well, this whole thing is like, it's got to be brutal because the whole thing is brutal. Like, 
it's got to feel scary in amongst the alien that they're chasing, right? And uh, Yafet Koder comes up and hits him, and then, oh, his head fully falls off, and we find out he is a robot. The scene where he's, where Ian Holmes starts, like, smacking Ripley around. Yeah. Sigourney Weaver is six feet tall. Mm-hmm. Ian Holm is five foot five. Yeah. So that's the first clue that, wait. You're like, that, something's mm-hmm. not right, because she is... He is beating her. Like, right. And he tries to get what, a rolled up pa- a new, uh, not a newspaper. It, it is like, like a newspaper. It's like that. And he rolls it up and he shoves it down her throat. Down like her he's throat. trying to choke her yeah. with it. Um, yeah. It's very obscure. Because you're just like, I've never, I don't know that I've ever seen somebody try and kill somebody like that. Um, it would fully work. Yeah, it would. There's a reason you don't see it because it's horrible to yeah. see. And then, yeah, he gets hit and his whole top of his head. Shoulders just tips over off like he's a. I don't, I don't know. I can't think of what what it would be like. like, like he's it's, like a broken Pez dispenser. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's like flip top head, kind of. Yeah. Uh, and you know he starts sort of spouting this um, white substance. <laughs> it's just disgusting. <laughs> Y'all, this movie is very oddly, horribly sexual. And uh, they're like, he's a robot, and she's fine, and they beat him until he's not moving anymore. And then they cut his head off, sort of jumpstart him, and so he can answer their questions. And he uh, says the creature is unkillable, and as such, he appreciates... It's whole vibe. What it's made out of, how it thinks, like he's into it. But the company, of course, wants to probably turn it into a weapon, right? That's what companies do. Which, once again, the hubris of capitalism. Like, Well, that's what this film is really about. Why do you think that you're going to be able to contain this thing? And I guess maybe they think if they only have one... It won't be able to, you know, reproduce, but we, we don't know that. You you put a lot of assumptions on a thing you've never worked with or seen before. Uh, so they uh, so he says that he basically is like, you uh, you're probably gonna all die, haha, and they uh, turn him off, and then. Uh, I believe they hit him with the flamethrower, right? He incinerates him. I'm pretty sure it's with the flamethrower. And at that point, they're going to just self-destruct the Nostromo and bounce. Like, we can't let this thing get anywhere. We got to get off and we got to kill it. But then they are ambushed, as you say. Yafikoto and Veronica Cartwright's characters are ambushed and he tries to help her, but they are both doomed. And now... It's Ripley, and she's all alone with the cat. She goes to run, but then she's like, oh, the cat, I gotta go get it. (laughs) And she puts it in a little cat carrier, and she she, first she has to abort the self-destruct, because now Mm -hmm. she's gonna, like, figure some shit out. And she, the thing is blocking her, her, you know, exit, her escape. And so she hides... She tries to abort the self-destruction, or destruct, and 
she's then she ends up they're like you got two minutes or whatever and they count there's a countdown mm-hmm. real time countdown which is right. always fun I love a real time countdown in a movie and uh, so she flees the shuttle she grabs the cat she you know flies away and she has escaped the Nostromo which has exploded into a billion pieces in space. She's definitely going to be charged for that 200 or 20 million tons of ore. And uh, she's like, phew, I'm going to go to sleep because I've had a day. Because we were talking about this at the end. I was like, has it been like 36 hours? Like they. It's hard to tell in space. I'm going to say it, t- it was, they were going to take 25 hours, say, to fix the mm-hmm. thing. They ended up doing that. We don't know how long Kane is out with mm-hmm. this thing on his face. So, I'd say max 56 hours. I don't think anybody slept during that time. So, at this point, this point, the alien could just be a, a, you know, a a hallucination. (laughs) Here's your alternate reading, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else. Yeah. And then, so she puts the cat in her little pod, Mm because apparently it's not like the fly. They can both get in there, and it'll be okay. And she's getting ready to... it's a sleeping pod, not a (laughs) trans... But still... Any kind of pod. I don't know right. that I want to be with another animal. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be in that either. And uh, so she's getting ready to go to bed, and this is where she takes off all of her clothes, and she's wearing very strange underwear to me. They're, I'm just like, those seem very uncomfortable. They almost seem like a menstrual pad more than anything else. And thank you for ruining that <laughs> for me. Okay. I was just like, <laughs> they don't. Just think of that now. They don't. They fit her very straight. It's very low in the front. It's too low in the back. I'm mm. just like. And maybe I wear them wrong. I don't know. I'm just like, zero coverage? Is this what's happening here? I'm wondering uh, if there's some executive who decided... Like, we want to see We've some seen ass. so much gore and carnage that we... So we'll lose the audience if she doesn't show her ass. So she's ready to go. She's, she's yeah, stripped down to nothing because you don't want to be mm. wearing clothes in this thing, right? Well, not nothing, but like... Right. Close to nothing. Close to nothing. And she is... Getting ready to get in, and she looks up, and it turns out that part of the, like, ridgy wall is actually the top of the alien's head, and it's in there with her. And it starts, like, sort of un mm-hmm. unbending itself from the wall to sort of extricate itself, and she backs herself into the corner, and she gets on, a, like, a spacesuit mm-hmm. quietly. I guess the cat was like, I'm staying in this pod. I'm not coming out because we don't see, we don't see the cat for a little while. What she like turns on like a gas because she has now fully put the spacesuit on so she can breathe regardless mm-hmm. of what's happening out there. And as it approaches her, she pushes a button. It ends as it did at the beginning with the push of a button. <laughs> this time though, he gets sucked into space, but he's got like a like a seatbelt. He's, he's he's like. He ends up being attached, tethered mm-hmm. to the ship. Um, uh, oh, that's what it is. She shoots him with a grappling hook, and then now there's... The thing about a grappling hook is it's a leash. <laughs> and so it starts pulling itself, and then it's going to hide in the engine, which is not a safe place to hide because she... Well, the exhaust for the engine. The exhaust, that's and, right. And so it's climbing up into the exhaust, and then she very cleverly... Turns on the engine. Right. T- pushes out that exhaust, and then it flies into space. And then she records a final log entry, mm-hmm. which is basically, 
fucking nobody listened to me and I'm the only one left. And then she goes into her little pod and she goes to sleep because she's exhausted. Right. And then she never stops being plagued by the alien. Yeah. So that's the movie. It's very tense. It is very... I like a movie that only takes place over a few days. Mm -hmm. Especially if on those few days nobody sleeps. Uh, Because I feel like the... That's why I thought you would like High Noon. It's almost real time. Yeah. It's just insistent. Yeah. I do. I like that as a a device. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's... It's a very easy thing to do to automatically put you at like a seven on stress. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, it's good. And she's so good. Yeah, she is. She looks so young. Her skin, so smooth. And it's interesting to know that Meryl Streep was considered for this too. I think that would be super interesting. But uh, it was right after the death of her partner, John Cazale. And so apparently... She was unprepared she to was work. She was not ready to start again. She was another... Sigourney Weaver had only done stage work before this mm. so I'm it's sure like they it just hard. went through the, the, the run of stage actresses who could do this part given her height I think mm. it was probably very hard for her to break into movies because yeah. actors are typically but as a stage actress you could foot. like oh she's going to stand out yeah right? exactly she is her height is speaking to the back of the room she yeah. doesn't she, you know she can add to it but she's already halfway there um, so so yeah it is very thrilling it's very good it's like I, I thought I had seen it more recently than, mm-hmm. like... So I, I remember in college, we watched all of them, one through four, in, like, a weekend. Right. Might have been one day. That's a thing that you do in college. Just on a when Saturday afternoon and decide, like we're going to watch yeah. a movie from now... Movies from now until four o'clock tomorrow morning, and then sleep tomorrow, and then class on Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought I had watched this one more recently than that, but there was a bunch of stuff that I didn't remember. The music for this movie is also really good. Mm-hmm. It's a Jerry Goldsmith score, and it's it really lends like the atmosphere of this mm-hmm. movie is strong. Like all of the choices that are made around sounds and visuals go together really well and make that stress sort of uh, extra. Like it just adds to mm-hmm. it. So you've got the short time. You've got the creepy visuals that are nothing like nothing you've ever seen before because mm-hmm. nobody here knows who H.R. Giger is and knows <laughs> what his work is and then this creepy score and they're out in alone in space and you're only talk you only see seven people like there's no mm. there's no like support they're just out there <laughs> just by themselves uh it was nominated, the, the score was nominated for a Golden Globe and a Grammy and won a BAFTA. So, pretty good. Yeah. What did you think? I, um, like I said, my reservations about just my crankiness at, uh, at the, the way the film was made. But other than that, the end result is actually very good. And I like this group of characters. They reminded me of, oddly enough, working when I was... Um, Hauling furniture. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah, just, it's just bonds with other people who... This working team. Right. And yeah. you have to work well together. I think to me that what really impressed me, though, overall was um, Ian Holm. Yeah. Uh, He's very good in this. He had been in, I think, 20 films at this point in his career. He was a stage actor. He had a nervous breakdown at one point. 
when he was doing the Iceman cometh, he was doing Eugene O'Neill. And, uh, I mean, literally trying to shove both feet into one shoe. And they took him away, and uh, he recovered, and he was terrified of going out on stage. Mm-hmm. So then he wound up acting in film, which is smaller pieces. Sm- yeah, fewer people. Right. And it's like you're, you're sitting all together, not performing for an audience. You don't have to see your audience. And he eventually recovered and came back to do Lear, which is amazing. But the idea that we have this breakdown to thank for some really amazing performances, including this one. He's very good. Even his, his physicality is really interesting because he looks like... Um, and I almost wish that... Because he's basically playing another version of what we saw in Blade Runner. Right? A yeah. simulacrum. He's yeah. not a robot. He's just no. he's not... He's artificially created. Although I think this he has more mechanical parts. Than he has more than mechanical parts. His brain certainly is. Yeah, I mean, in Blade Runner, there. But he's like Terminator. Like right. he's he internal metal, mm-hmm. right? Not not as strong as Terminator, obviously, because right. he breaks. I mean, Yafakoto's a big dude. Yafakoto's a yeah. He's but a big... <laughs> but uh, I, I, he breaks pretty mm-hmm. easily. Right. But he's also well, very he strong. He also hits him on the back of the head, like when he knocks yeah. his head off. That was, to me, that was a, a scene that really worked, too, because this is this whole film is a triumph of practical special effects. I know. That's the best. That's the thing. It fucking holds up. Right. Because it's not shitty CGI from, like, the early 80s. It no, is it, practical. Which a lot of the sequels were. Even though the chestburster runs away like it's on wheels. Right. But I, I love him so much. I just love his little... <laughs> he runs away. Yeah, um... And it was a lot of different talents coming together to make this film as it is now. So uh, despite all the other reservations I have about other films that approached this or could have approached it with a better budget, I really did appreciate what happened with this film and this this kind of um, gathering of this particular group of talented people to put this together. I think it's probably one of the better films that Ridley Scott ever did, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Not uh, Gladiator. No, I was not necessarily entertained. Because, again, Gladiator was another kind of film that I saw a lot of as a kid. Yeah. No, that's true. And it's For just sure. sort of like he's revisiting genres, then he does a biblical epic. You know they're making he a does. sequel to Gladiator. comes out next year. I'm not sure how that's going to work. I do want to see his current... He's currently got a film uh, out. Mm-hmm. Napoleon. Yes, I've heard... Um, I've, I don't know. I've heard sort of strange mixed reviews about it. But I'm curious again, to watch it because I don't know anything about... He's taller than people think. That's, that's what I know. Well, yeah, and it's Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix, I have a... I, I don't know how I feel about Joaquin Phoenix. None of us do. Yeah. So, he's... Yeah, he's a weird dude. And he... he, he is weird in all of his movies. I have not seen Joker. I will not see Joker. Don't anybody ask me about Joker. I don't know anything about it. His performance is good, but the film is the film is not as good as his performance. I'm sure his performance is good because he's typically right. good. But that that's weird. Kind of but good. The, my issue with it is that it he needed a better story because it feels if it wasn't for his performance, if somebody else had done this, um, it would have just kind of been. Uh, not particularly interesting origin story. So, Alien. Mm-hmm. Number six on the list. What do you think? Uh, no, I think it's pretty good. That feels about right mm-hmm. to me. Uh, 
Especially because the top movies are kind of weighted. Well, so this is about the sweet spot for the top movies, except the top movie mm-hmm. is Psycho, so it's a little bit older. But uh, So do you know what we're going to watch next week? What number five on the oh, list is? number five? Silence of the Lambs. Okay, good. I like that. <laughs> you looked like I was going to punch you in the face. What do you... Oh, no, that's number three. <laughs> okay. We've got two weeks before you have to watch the next <laughs> list. Uh yeah, The Exorcist comes out in the week between Halloween and or between Christmas and New Year's for us, which is going to be interesting. But no, Silence of the Lambs next week. One of my favorite movies. I used to put it on to go to sleep, so that tells Explains you some things yeah. about me. Uh, but it's only because I knew what was going to happen. I read all the books. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed them all. I like reading about mind palaces, I guess, because I also enjoyed Dreamcatcher more than other people did, maybe. Uh, so we'll talk about the Hannibal Lecter of it all, the Clarice of it all, how many people have played those two characters over time, uh, and, uh, whether it's thrilling. You guys, spoiler alert, it's thrilling. You should watch it. Uh, until then, do you have anything you want to recommend? Okay, so our roommate, uh, asked if I wanted to watch a, an anime. That's currently on Netflix, and I'm not necessarily big into anime, but I did get her to watch all of Gamera. So, <laughs> so your turn like, now. Yeah, now you've got to do a thing. But I'm really, I have enjoyed it. Uh, Blue Eyes Samurai. Oh, yeah. Which is... A, I it looks very beautiful, I but I'm not a person who enjoys right. that particular art form. I can't quite describe it without giving anything away. Other than that, if it's it's a a character on a mission of vengeance from God, no. <laughs> oh, that's a pretty yes. In the that, that's a century. that's a fun, you know. Any time, any mission of vengeance, any you kill my father, right. prepare to die. I'm in. Well, yeah, and, and the the art style also is not very anime. It's different, and really, if you're not into the sort of the sharp edges and corners than the anime is this different art so it's a husband and wife team that created it and it's a it's a French American animated production but it really gives a lot of really interest a point of view from the point of, well when I was a kid you saw things like Shogun right it's always the westerner coming into right. Japan and exploring all, and you have this western point of view here it's a person who is a uh, both uh, their father is Caucasian and their mother is Japanese. Japanese, okay. And she was taken advantage of. Oh no! And get revenge on the person who might have sired them. So it's and there's all these incidental characters they meet along the way. There's a very spoiled princess who really is unlikable in the beginning, turns out to be more likable. That's how it works. There is a man who can only be described as Buddha-like both in girth and friendliness and his ability to just sort of receive everything that comes at him with really Chill. good humor. Yeah. Yes, he's very funny. There's a couple of uh, samurai characters and then the villain who's really remarkable and that's a voice... And there's a lot of really good voice acting. Kenneth Branagh is the villain. Uh, George Takei, Randall Park, Kerry Tagawa is playing the sword master. Yeah. Um, and a few actors I don't know, and some of the, uh, like, uh, 
Maya Erskine, who I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, Ming Na Wen, Mark DeCascos. We love Ming Na. Right. There's a lot of really interesting people in here. So, um, yeah, my only warning is that it is very sexual and really gory at times. It's not a cartoon for kids. No, it's don't. It's a cartoon for adults. You and I, ladies and gentlemen and everyone else, Emily and I went to go see Pan's Labyrinth once when it was uh, in theaters. Oh, there was a little kid there. And a person so had brought their child to see this movie. Like four years old? Because, A, they were learning Spanish at preschool, and B, Ooh. it has fairies in it, of course. Uh, mm. <laughs> and <laughs> Some people don't understand what fairies have uh, historically been, right. which is it's like, terrifying. These fairies, uh, midway through the film, anyone who hasn't seen it, get devoured by a horrible pale man with eyes in his hands. So, but I still love that character. Right, but okay. still, it's like that kid. But scary. I don't want to see it in real life. Screams in the back of the theater. Was, I mean, now I'm laughing about it. I, I'm sure that this young lady is still is still recovering, maybe, from having seen that at four. Yeah, oh, she's in therapy still. Anyway, so, just to warn you, it gets violent, it gets sexual. It's very funny, though, overall, and it's actually really interesting, main character. So, what would you recommend? I don't have anything this week because I was driving a lot. Oh, you know what I will recommend? Uh-huh. I just finished listening to the audiobook of mm. a book called The Fourth Wing by an author named Rebecca Yaros. This is what's now being termed as, quote, new adult, which is sort of young adult fantasy themes, but with sex in it mm-hmm. and swearing. Right. Uh, targeted at you know, basically anyone 18 and up, but really kid, mm-hmm. people younger than that are going to read it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a, it takes place in a war college. They're dragon riders. But it's really engaging, and I really enjoyed it. And now I'm on to book two. It was originally going to be two books, and now apparently it's going to be five books. So you could just wait until all of them are out. But uh, I really, I'm enjoying it's it a, a lot. And... Um, it is sort of effortly inclusive as far as, you know, one of the characters just is deaf. Mm-hmm. Um, not, a, not a major character, but a small character, and they sign uh, with them. Uh, the main character has basically the equivalent of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a, it's a group of disorders where your bones are pretty brittle and your all your limbs hyperextend. You usually have very long fingers, mm-hmm. but you it's very easy to dislocate everything. And so she is a physically weak character that doesn't get good at stuff mm. magically, right? Um, there's no Mary Sue uh, sort of claim that can be leveled against her. She finds ways to use her brain to overcome what's going on with her body. Mm. Uh, and apparently people have said, w- with the syndrome or people who study the syndrome says say that this is a pretty spot on sort of insider view of this this mm. uh this syndrome the other thing that's really interesting about it is she does well too because she's always in pain she's used to working in pain right. these other people have been coddled much of their life so they might be tough or whatever but as soon as they're injured a little that it's take it takes them out completely, right. and she's just like, no, no, no. Every day of my life, I'm in pain all the time. So it's an interesting point of view. It reminds you a little bit of Mr. Glass. Yes, it, yes. 
Um, but yeah, it's a it's a connective skin right. or connective tissue issue, <laughs> uh, which is really that's really interesting to have a a main character. Uh, it's a first person protagonist uh, point of view that is not a perfect specimen or whatever. Like, and isn't just like <laughs> isn't imperfect in the way that you know, somebody like Katniss Everdeen is, which is, like, she's grumpy. (laughs) That's, like, at a job interview when they say, what's your greatest weakness? And it's, like, I work too hard or I care too much. Like, oh, okay, though. Uh, She is, she legitimately has what you would consider a weakness for her position. Mm -hmm. And and she overcomes what she has so far. I presume that in a first-person narrative... The, the person who is the first is not going to die, generally. So you can be concerned for them, but you're like, mm, she's probably going to pull through. Mm. She's telling this in real time, unless the book just ends suddenly because her consciousness <laughs> disappears, which that's how, I feel like that has happened. That before. happens uh, at the end of For Russia With Love. Oh, yeah? James Bond is killed. Oh, and, and like, then... What the hell? And there was, again, an uproar, and he was asked by, or rather, who was it? I think it might have been, like, as people like Raymond Chandler and Yeah, John I feel F. like Kennedy, maybe The Crying of Lot 49 does right, something similar to that, where, where it just stops. Yeah, and they just ask him, could you please bring him back? You killed him at the end of the book. Nope. And um, was it He Chandler? fell off of a waterfall. Right. Can't do anything about it. Unless you are captured by Annie Wilkes, and then you are forced to... I'm talking about Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Um, <laughs> you are forced to reimagine your dead characters so that you don't lose a limb. Well, Sherlock Holmes was too popular to die, and frankly, so was James Bond. Um, oh, and I should mention this. When we... Uh, when Blue Eye Samurai also has a, the character, Ringo, the, 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 cheerless, the cheerful optimist. Uh-huh. He has no hands. Oh, he has a, like a birth um, defect where he basically is working in the kitchen, but he has no hands, so he has to strap knives and things to chop. That's rad. And uh, the you were mentioning inclusiveness yeah. and the swordmaster that Kerry Tagawa plays, and he even looks like Kerry Tagawa too. That same kind of fierce uh, samurai face. The swordmaster's um, blind, and so well, that's does, a pretty standard trope. Tr- but right? he does everything by hearing. Like, when he's hitting the metal, he knows if it's making the right noise right. or if it's going to break. So it's like the blind sword master. I like all the these stories no now hands. that are like, yeah. hey, not everybody. is this, uh, There's a lot of um, different uh, ethnicities or colors. Mm-hmm. They're not ethnic because it's not. it doesn't take right. place in our world. It's a fantasy story with different, you know, it's their dragons and griffins. Oh, that's the other thing, mass nouns. They're called, it's called a riot of dragons and a drift of griffins, and I think those are fantastic. <laughs> uh, but uh, a lot of people of different colors, like skin yeah. tones. So you'll hear a- alabaster, ebony, you know, um, umber was one of the ones I just heard. Yeah. So uh, that's nice too. Just like, hey, not everybody is a able-bodied straight white person. Yeah. Turns out, <laughs> uh, so that's I like that fourth wing. Rebecca Yaros. I don't know about any of her other books. I'm reading the second one now. And by reading, I mean I'm listening to it. That's the same which thing. counts. All right. We done? We good? Yes. We're going to watch The Silence of the Lambs. You guys are not silent. They scream. That's kind of the whole 
thing with that. Uh, if you haven't seen it, watch it along with us. If you have seen it, watch it along with us. It's real good. You can watch it a bunch of times. Trust me, I have. In the meantime, before then, you can find us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You could write us an email. You could tell us what you think we should do next because we're on number five, y'all. We're almost done with this list. And then you could also find us on Facebook by searching for Latecomers Podcast. And I want to remind you to please take your medicine. And we'd like to remind you, better, better late, late than, than never. never.